Get ready for season three of the Tron Grand Hackathon 2022 with a total of $1.2 million in prizes across Web3, DeFi, GameFi, NFTs, and the newly added Academy and Ecosystem tracks. The wait is over. Tron Grand Hackathon presented by TronDAO. To learn more, visit trondao.org. Eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com slash the scoop now. This episode is brought to you by IWC. IWC Schaffhausen is a Swiss luxury watch manufacturer based in Schaffhausen, Switzerland. Known for its unique engineering approach to watchmaking, IWC combines the best of human craftsmanship and creativity with cutting edge technology and processes. Discover the full collection at IWC.com or download the IWC app to experience a virtual try-on now. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and today we have a very exciting episode for you. Joining us today on the show, on the other side of the mic, are two guests, Victor, protocol specialist at Coinbase Cloud, and Stefan, Mev Boost, architect and co-founder of Flashbots, both heavily involved in this project, which we are going to dissect and talk about. Have you guys ever tried to explain what you do to your like grandparents or parents? It doesn't go well. It doesn't, it doesn't work out. How does it shake out, Victor, when you try to explain exactly? Have you ever tried to explain Flashbots to someone over 70 years old? I haven't yet tried to even explain crypto to someone over 70 years old. The furthest that I've come is my grandma trying to explain to her how Bitcoin works because were from Russia, um, and she was around for the Soviet Union and communism and all that stuff. And I said, Grandma, wouldn't it be nice if there was a form of money that you could self-custody and nobody could take away from you and you know, yada, yada, yada? And she says, that's very nice. My dear, please eat. <laughs> <laughs> You're too skinny. Yeah, yeah, every time. Don't tell me about peer-to-peer -peer transactions. Tell me about when, when food in your mouth, grandson. Um, what about you, Stefan? I remember um, during DeFi summer, I guess that was back in 2020. Um, so my, my grandparents are farmers and they've been farmers their entire life. And I was trying to explain to them the phenomenon of yams. Um, and, uh, <laughs> the food <laughs> the, coins? The, the food coins, exactly. And the fact that you could plant these yams and they would re return like 5,000% 5, 5, uh, per week. <laughs> and they were like, sign me up or we need to get you into the mental ward. 
And I said, that's, that's nice, son. I, I'm not going to use the internet. I've never used it. And now's not, not the time for me to start. <laughs> All right. I don't know how many of our audience members are over the age of 70, probably not that many, but just for all of our listeners, explain to us where Flashbot sits in the broader crypto ecosystem. So there's a category of transactions that fall into the MEV bucket. And MEV just means maximal extractable value. It's a little bit of a technical term. But the way to think about it is that as a user, you're able to, for example, perform arbitrage right, by rebalancing uh, what an asset is worth between different decentralized exchanges. You're able to liquidate DeFi positions in order to keep those protocols healthy and do a whole number of other things. And when you think about these activities, um, these are activities that are profit generating. And because they're profit generating, there tends to be competition for those opportunities, as many people will, for example, race to be the one to make that profit by performing that service or executing that transaction. And so these are all actions that happen on all general purpose smart contract platforms and certain dApp chains, and they've been happening on Ethereum for a very long time. But the problem is that there's a whole bunch of externalities, right? So costs borne by folks that are different than who initiated the action. Um, and so in this specific case, if you have a big liquidation that's happening, and there's a whole bunch of bots that are competing in order to perform the liquidation, then a whole bunch of transactions might fail because they'll just continue sending transactions to the mempool, continue trying to be um, the one that offers the highest price, but then only one transaction will be accepted, the other ones will fail. And so it'll eat up block space and actually make it more expensive for all other users to transact. And so when you think about something like Flashbots, what it does is it essentially creates something of a private mempool or a fast lane where it says, hey, you're welcome to compete all you'd like, but you should do it at this layer. And then there will be a standardized way by which whoever is the, is the winning bid, essentially the winning transaction, that'll be the one that gets included on the blockchain and no others. And this is a better experience for everybody because these individuals or, or bot operators or whoever they are, mm -hmm. um, they're you know, searching for these opportunities, are able to only have a single one of their transactions included and they're able to cut down on their amount of gas spent and cut down on all of their failures. And then for regular users, it's also better because now they don't have to bear the cost of those externalities from this competition. And so the same types of activities happen in the Flashbots private mempool you can think of it as, or Fastlane, as what is happening on Ethereum, except now uh, it's a little bit better for everybody involved. Got it. I can also sort of provide an extension on, on what Victor mentioned. Yeah, go ahead. So I think that's like a very good way to frame uh, what, what Flashbots does. I think one, one way that I like to think about it is try to draw a parallel between how crypto is evolving and how traditional finance uh, structures have been evolving. So the core insight that, um, that got you know, the five co-founders of Flashbots to get together and start to work on this was looking at these sort of market microstructures that are starting to evolve on, on crypto. And in particular, how various different players that are trying to capture opportunities were acting and the impact that those actions had on the market. So Flashbots is a, a research and development company. We look at market structures, we research them, and we develop products to try to improve them um, and, and make sure that they're aligned with the, the intent of the chains that they're operating on top of. So the history of traditional finance over the last 20 years or so 
right? In the late 90s, early 2000s, you started to have this concept of dematerialization, right? Taking shares that were typically traded in person and then putting them um, on computers, right? And then setting up these exchanges. And so with the rise of this uh, sort of electronic trading, you also had these these specialized uh, funds, right? Trading teams that for the first time ever started trading using using algorithms, using using bots. There's this great book called uh, Dark Pools that explores that how- That is a good book. How, exactly, that explores how this sort of evolution has, uh, has happened for, for traditional finance. And what we're seeing is pretty much the same evolution on top of, of crypto. So, you know, mm. Ethereum has been the place where people have started de- deploying exchanges, lending protocols, all of these, um, these financial tools. Um, and that has brought forward a bunch of different traders, bot operators to try to, um, to arbitrage, liquidate, capture opportunities. And what Flashboss does is we, we build the infrastructure that sort of allows uh, them to do this most efficiently. So, okay, can I boil it down to effectively Flashbots is a facilitator of allowing, if we're going to compare it to this transition you're talking about in trading market structure history, it'd be the equivalent as being the facilitator of moving traders out of the sort of physical hand-waving market structure dynamic into the algorithmic age, except in crypto. Yeah, it's, it's you know, facilitator is a tricky word. At the end of the day, we, we write open source software and, and operate and various different people run it. So the practicality of what the system looks like is completely different from traditional finance. But we are helping sort of move away from people clicking, you know, send transactions on MetaMask uh, into these like very advanced, highly complex, low latency systems where, you know, people send uh, hundreds of transactions per second. And, and we build, you know, the pipes and infrastructure that, uh, that help this take place without affecting the, the rest of the system. Mm-hmm. Building bots to sort of engage in trade at the protocol level versus then in a manual way via screen. That's right. So a lot of these traders, right, that are sophisticated. You know, to be clear, Flashbots itself doesn't do any trading, right? We're a technology and infrastructure sort of provider. That's like where where the the development side of the, the research and development organization goes. Uh, but, but we provide the tools that sophisticated traders use. Understood. And so how have they typically sort of executed on these types of trades is it is it through something like a metamask and what does flashbots then enable them to do differently is it is it helping with quicker transactions is it sort of allowing them to get in the front of a queue to some extent what practically are they able to do so so victor touched on this a little bit historically right at the start and, and throughout DeFi summer, all of the transactions were submitted through this, what we call the transaction pool, right? The peer-to-peer network, which is, you know, the, the core way that Ethereum was designed to propagate transactions from users to, to miners. The problem, very much so like in traditional finance, where if you send a transaction to a public exchange, it can be sort of targeted by, yeah. by HFTs, the same problem existed, uh, right? With hmm. Ethereum, where if you send it to this public transaction pool, any other actor can trade against you because they see those those transactions. So the first step was just to provide a direct communication channel that allows users to and, and users and traders to send 
transaction requests directly to the miners uh, for inclusion in blocks. Um, so for the last year and a half, um, uh, on, on top of proof of work, this is how the system has worked, right? There's this uh, product called MEVGeth, so Go Ethereum modification that allows for accepting these bundles of transactions, you know, these advanced preferences directly from uh, from users without them being communicated uh, to the public. And now we're sort of moving into a new era uh, with the merge where we use uh, a system called MevBoost, um, and this is this is tailored specifically for for proof of stake Ethereum. So are you like the Brad Katsuyama of blockchain? Um, Is Flashbots a pun or a spin on Flash Boys or? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Of course. Obviously. Of course. That's you should lead with that. You should lead with that. That's true. Uh, Because it it, it does conceptualize it pretty well. Yeah. I, I think that there's, there's a reason to also not lead with it, which is that I think that once you start drawing parallels, IEX hasn't really been a success. Well, <laughs> beyond that, <laughs> um, I think that once you start drawing parallels to traditional finance, people start applying traditional finance terminology and thinking to uh, what Flashbots is doing. And so something people sometimes say is, this, oh, is this payment forward or flow? And, you, and then you have to go into a fairly lengthy explanation of why it's not. And there's you know a dozen reasons, but that's one of the reasons why you don't want to associate too closely with traditional finance because then you have to almost like unlearn or uneducate all the kind of like assumptions that people the trappings uh, of of yeah. of Wall Street. Um but obviously what what sort of Brad and the team noticed in their bank world, I think it was RBC, they were they were sort of trading on behalf of large institutional clients, pension funds and the like, and they noticed that when they would submit an order, let's say, you know, 500,000 shares of Apple stock, they would notice that the price would move against them. And they were able to sort of figure out that the reason why that was happening was because there was a latency arbitrage where effectively traders with faster access to the data centers of NASDAQ and of New York Stock Exchange and of CBOE, which are in, I think, Carteret, New Jersey, they, as a result of being within those data centers, could then tap the market quicker or see what the market looks like. And what they would do is once they could see that before anyone else, they would then submit an order to another exchange and front run that vis-a-vis what's known as um, latency arbitrage. And so what they built was actually, it's funny because it is somewhat similar. They built a I don't know exactly the mechanics, but they built a device for traders or for themselves internally that could effectively stop that from happening. And then they went on to build what was, a, I think, at first an ATS, an alternative trading system, and then an exchange, which sort of implements a speed bump system that puts all traders on the same playing field effectively, which ultimately a number of other exchanges, at least um, NYSE, I know for sure, uh, have implemented similar speed bumps since then. So it's it is an interesting comparison, but I do see your point about, you know, it it's a tough thing because when you don't start at first principles, it does muddy your ability to conceptualize the the most precise definition or structure of what something is. Yeah. The problem with trying to apply too much parallel between traditional finance and, and here is that then you try to 
like a- apply the traditional finance solutions, um, mm-hmm. which one of the big insights that we've had is that they've been highly ineffective, right? Like what you see in traditional finance is that there's a small set of market makers and HFTs that have basically successfully regulatorily captured the market and are able to sort of derive a sustainable advantage through through this capture. The insights and the the, the mission of, of Flashboss is to try to bring a sort of market solution and a technological solution that avoids this entrenchment of power that we've seen in, in these other markets. So if we have a research-driven, open conversation and analysis of these systems, uh, we're confident that we can design and build something that's more democratized, more transparent, and is able to redistribute value much better than the systems that have been uh, designed for traditional finance. Mm. So we haven't even we haven't even touched the most important thing yet, which is the merge. How did so uh, obviously you knew this was coming. Did you did you sort of have a game plan for the switch? And what does it look like now? Yeah, we we've been working and looking at the merge for for well over a year now. You know, being deep in the the Ethereum community, we're sort of well well aware that this was becoming a focus, and um, all the core developers of Ethereum, this was the next big 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 push that that they wanted to make. So. Yeah, about a year ago, I started looking at what does a solution, a market solution, a technological solution for the merge look like, and designed this um, this system called MEV Boost, uh, working with uh, with partners like like Victor and and a bunch of others, and uh, and making sure that this was something that would work for um, for all the stakeholders on on Ethereum. So the design process took a while, right? Like as as things do when there's so many stakeholders involved, but you know, now we're at the point where it's shipped, it's live, it's on mainnet, um, and producing a, a huge chunks of, of blocks there. I would love to, yeah, hear maybe from from Victor from his perspective, like what what does the design process for for this and the transition to, to proof of stake look like from a large node operator perspective? Yeah, yeah, happy to. So, for a little bit of context for listeners, as a reminder, I guess I work at Coinbase Cloud, which is a large infrastructure provider. Uh, we run a good chunk of Ethereum as well as a number of other networks. And are you guys sort of using Flashbots? So I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment. So I've been working with Stefan and, and the rest of the Flashbots team for over a year now as, as something of a contributor, an uh, uh, unpaid but highly appreciated <laughs> contributor. And I think one of the interesting bits is that before we got to Proof-of-Stake Ethereum, um, Flashbots was actually very successful on Proof-of-Work Ethereum. And they had a really large chunk of the network. And so that's how we initially started talking to them and paying attention to them because we knew that the transition to proof of stake was coming. And so as Coinbase Cloud, we were very heavily, obviously, like incentivized and excited by what they were doing and by the role that we were going to be able to play working with the Flashbots team in the future. And so to that end, something that I started, for example, is the Flashbots ETH2 working group. Which, as Stefan mentioned, you know they're working with a lot of partners to make sure that their implementation was uh, one that worked for everybody, and so that was something that we were happy to contribute to because they're designing these systems is all about trade-offs. And when you're working with something like Mev, you have to make a lot of decisions around what are the trust assumptions that you're willing to accept. You know what are the different you know risk parameters that you're willing to tolerate within your system, and how do you prevent against different types of misbehavior and attacks and and all that stuff. And so as cloud. Um, we are planning on supporting uh, Flashbots, and we haven't launched that support just yet. 
but we are planning on turning that on for customers to be able to opt into in the near future. And so once that happens, folks that are uh, running Ethereum validators with Coinbase Cloud are going to be able to opt into the system and essentially opt into this proposer builder separation that that Flashbots enables and start participating in this in the system. Yeah, one one thing to underline there is just, you know, the huge effort that is designing this kind of system, right? Like there's 430,000 validators on Ethereum, right? 430,000 nodes that are running some software that can connect to to the system. And those those node operators range from solo stakers who are just at home, right, running some software on their computer to massive multi-billion dollar companies like Coinbase Cloud who are, you know, running millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars of, of, of infrastructure on behalf of their customers. And the solution, you know, MevBoost had to be one that's compatible with all range of, of stakeholders, all range of validators from the, the smallest one to, to the largest one. So, so this effort that, that Victor mentioned of, um, of the E2 uh, working group, you know, was instrumental. And, you know, I can't thank Victor enough for, for having put this together, but instrumental in bringing all of these large node operators together to figure out what, what is a specification that, that would work for, for all of them. And now we're, we're seeing sort of an increasing percentage of, of the Ethereum network running MevBoost. I think as it stands a few days after the merge, already 20% of the entire network is running MevBoost. And we'll, we expect to see that number only climb from here. That's pretty interesting. 20%. We got to get you to 100. When 100? You know, you, you, you can start to approach it. I mean, on on proof of work, about uh, 85%, 90% of miners were running our software. So I think it'll be a matter of time as people explore MevBoost to uh, to start running it. I can look what, what's the updated today. Yeah. And actually, and, and while you're looking, Frank, something else that you'll appreciate is that Ethereum on proof of stake is significantly more decentralized than proof of work Ethereum. And so on proof of work Ethereum, you just needed uh, a number of mining pools to opt into it. But on proof of stake Ethereum, you have a huge collection of enthusiasts and other smaller infrastructure providers. And so I think it'll take longer to get to 85% in some but, ways. But why not? Why is price so bad? <laughs> I check price every day. It's bad price. I can't take it anymore. You'd think that you'd think that there'd be more capital flooding in because ETH is now a productive asset. I think it takes a little bit of time. Um, it's easier for you, for example, who has such a pulse on everything that's happening in the industry and sees all the trends and the narratives. Like you probably knew that there was going to be a productive asset two years ago, right? Mm. Um, but when you think about the broader market, it's like have a conversation with somebody that you know that's in even a tangential industry and they'll mm. have no idea about what's going on. So it's okay. It takes a little bit of time. It'll percolate. But I think that fundamentally one of the nice things is that what we want is we want for ETH as an asset and for, and for Soul and everything else to be useful, right? Like useful as money, useful as you know the enablement of applications and whatnot. And I think that that's actually the underlying trend of just that ETH has been getting a ton more useful. It got even more useful today. And so I'm really not worried about the short-term price movements from that perspective. Get ready for season three of the Tron Grand Hackathon 2022. 
There are a total of $1.2 million in prizes up for grabs in Web3, DeFi, GameFi, NFTs, and the newly added Academy and Ecosystem tracks. So what are you waiting for? Join Tron for an opportunity to showcase your work, win funding for your project, and network with other builders in the community. Tron Grand Hackathon, presented by TronDAO. To learn more, visit trondow.org. Are you eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis is here to help. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Gain unparalleled visibility and maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting chainalysis.com slash the scoop now. This episode is brought to you by IWC. IWC Schaffhausen is known for continually innovating within the world of Swiss watchmaking. A pioneer in the use of titanium and ceramics, IWC today specializes in highly engineered watch cases manufactured from advanced materials such as colored ceramics, ceritanium, and titanium aluminide. This year's collection includes colored ceramic pieces in Lake Tahoe white and woodland green. Discover the new collection at IWC.com or download the IWC app to experience a virtual try-on now. Let's say we have new market participants, whether they're traditional trading firms, traditional quant funds, engaging with MEV Boost. How does that how does that change the market structure? How does it how does it maybe make Ethereum more robust? I'll I'll kind of kick it off from my perspective, uh, which is just focused on the infrastructure layer. So one of the nice things that I really like about Ethereum is that it has this unlimited unlimited validator set and it has a fairly small uh barrier to entry to run a validator of only 32 ETH which is you know orders of magnitude smaller than than it is on some other networks and so one of the nice things there is that you have this like pretty low barrier to entry but you also have a pretty forgiving blockchain design in that if you have a little bit of downtime not a big deal the network is actually uh, very forgiving of downtime and so when you think about these new players coming to the space, one of the things that I'm hope hopeful for is that a lot of them choose to either run their own validators or leverage services like Coinbase Cloud to run their own validators. And what do we want is we want as many individuals and as many entities as possible in the world to have a vested stake in crypto generally, but also if they're operating a particular protocol, we want them to be providing uh, support, services, and security to that protocol to continue to make the network more decentralized, more robust. Understood. That's the fun. What were we, we going to say around these folks entering the space? I think it's inevitable, right? Like as markets develop, as the size of Ethereum, as the size of MEV develops, there'll be a lot more specialization. I think the key factor that Flashbots looks at is making sure that this doesn't compromise the decentralization um, and sort of the key key properties that, that we're looking to defend of Ethereum. And that's why like all of these systems need to be designed in a way that are aware, right? And sort of predict the game theory of, of mm. economics. It's not that like they are going to like come in and 
you know, add necessarily anything or, you know, subtract anything from, from the system. I think it's the system will naturally evolve to go from more enthusiast hobbyists to more specialized players. Um, and that's just something that needs to be taken into consideration when, when it's, uh, when it's being designed. Um, so it's not, it's not a question of good or bad or et cetera. It's more of a question of how do we make sure that it evolves in a way that becomes more useful rather than less useful to, to the end users. Understood. Can you address sort of maybe some of the concerns out there about censorship resistance? Yeah, um, I can, I can sort of talk a little bit about it. So I think censorship is like one of the key aspects that comes with centralization. I mean, there are others, right? Like if, if a blockchain itself is very centralized and you can start to have consensus issues, right? Someone that's trying to change the rules, uh, you can have liveness issues where people try to like bring the chain down. But one of the main ones is, is also censorship. It's one of the sort of key properties that, um, that blockchains aim to, um, to protect against. And yeah, as there's more specialized parties that sort of come in and play and operate on top of these systems, they can accrue more control, more power, and therefore have uh, sort of a stronger ability to, uh, to select which transactions um, go in. I don't think we're anywhere near, you know, a scenario where there's active censorship and like where someone who wants to submit a transaction and get them included on Ethereum is not able to. I think the blockchain itself for um, is designed to be very reliable against this, but you know, it, it's, it's also a slippery slope. You know, there, there can be changes mm. that happen over time that, that degrade the amount of, of censorship resistance. And, you know, it's one of the, the main uh, subjects that I think a lot of Ethereum researchers are, are looking at these days. So after the merge, what what do you think is top of mind for most researchers in the Ethereum ecosystem? What is everyone thinking about or talking about? What's at the forefront now? We'll see. I think it's too early to tell. Um, I, you know, for a long time, everyone was all hands on deck to try to make the merge happen. I'm sure people will take a couple of weeks off and relax before they start looking at, you know, what's the next big project. There's some things that, that are coming up that, that obviously a lot of people are excited about. One of them is, you know, withdrawals for, for validators, more scalability through through sharding. And and then on the, the MEV front, well, you know, MevBoost is really you know, an approximation of a, of a solution that's designed to happen at the base layer. There's a solution called proposer builder separation that, um, that tries to improve the amount of decentralization that validators have. Um, and so there's going to be a push over time to embed more of the properties of MevBoost directly into the protocol as opposed to being sort of a, a layer above. So on the MEV front, that's that's something that um, the researchers will be looking at. Yeah, I'm curious if, if Victor has a different take on this from the, from the validator side. Yeah, I mean, this was definitely an issue that was top of mind for Bitcoiners for 13, 14 years now. Um, it was top of mind mm -hmm. for folks in the Ethereum community. It's always been something that uh, people have thought about. And the fact that it's come a little bit more to the for forefront now is just a sign that things ebb and flow over time and different things become important over time. But I think that when we think about infrastructure providers, there's a really important component when we think about censorship resistance, which is that, and I'm, I'm going to actually quote, I, I pulled it up while we were talking, something for, from Paul Garwal, who's our chief legal officer at Coinbase. And he says, I think the law is pretty clear. 
nothing compels miners, stakers, or anybody else at the base layer to monitor or censor transactions. And that's and he has a little bit of a thread on it around, you know, what does that mean? But the TLDR is that, you know, there have been folks that wanted to censor things on the Bitcoin blockchain for a long time. People, you know, might have wanted to censor things on Zcash and Monero and Ethereum. Different governments have expressed different opinions about, you know, addresses and smart contracts on these blockchains. And I think one of the important things is that as of right now, like it is important that we continue to advance censorship resistance, but there's actually no legal precedent as far as we are aware, or, you know, quoting from Paul Grewal, that would compel anybody to monitor or censor transactions. And so I think that's the other thing to not to make people like not worry about it, because um, it is obviously an existential topic that, and we need to make sure that our infrastructure is credibly neutral in the ecosystem. But it is something that we should put into the right context around what is actually happening and and what is kind of like people jumping to to conclusions. Understood. It's an interesting topic. So why did you decide to open source it? MetBoost? Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, it's software that needs to be run by all the validators, right? So validators run Ethereum clients. They run a consensus client and ex execution client. That is open source, and, and it has to be so that they understand the rules of, of what they're, they're, they're running. MevBoost is just sort of a third piece of software that plugs into their existing infrastructure. Uh, and for them to be able to trust it, we, we knew that we had to make it open sourced. Now, the, the goal of it is to create more transparency, more transparent market. It's not to try to create systems that are closed and like only able to participate by a few. The goal is to make it you know transparent, democratic, and, and freely accessible. So anything that needs to scale to 430,000 validators has to be credibly neutral. And that's the that's the best approach at, at doing it. Um, I have some some early numbers I want to share, right? The, the merge happened a few days ago, and already we're seeing a lot of data come out of, of MevBoost. One of the ma main things that, that makes it attractive for, for validators to run is that it increases their rewards, right? So Frank, um, maybe just question how, how much do you think the um the yield on eth from uh from running a validator are going to be i, I want to know what your what data you have all i know is that coinbase gives me like three and a half percent for staking my eth which is not enough victor you gotta you gotta boost that gotta get that to like working on these it these are rookie numbers <laughs> working on it so, so this is the exact point of MevBoost, right? It boosts those rewards. So our, our models show that like with MevBoost, you can get up to sort of 7% yield on stake based on historical data. Um, and over the past few days, the, the data has been even more encouraging. So a validator on average who's been proposing blocks has been receiving about 0.09 ETH per block that they propose um, if they do not use MevBoost. But with MevBoost, it's over double, um, so they get back almost 0.2 ETH uh, for each blocks that they that they propose. So um, there's sort of a clear incentive here for you know validators to run this this open software. Um, they double the yield that they that they make on on their ETH uh, basically on average from what we've seen in the last few days. Is there ultimately diminishing returns at some point? Like when we think about, and maybe this is exactly why you don't like to compare yourselves too much to or sort of think about your existence with a backdrop of, of traditional finance because it may not be the case but 
as we know, in the high-frequency trading world, ultimately those returns sort of diminished, the returns of latency arbitrage. Ultimately, when enough folks are using MetBoost, will, will that sort of result in a, in a diminishing yield as the market gets maybe more efficient or the system gets more efficient with, with more crowded participants? Actually, just uh, before Stefan answers, just a quick note for the viewers slash listeners. When we... The listeners. The listeners. <laughs> um, You're in their ear. Do you ever think about that when you go on podcasts? How like... You're in their ear. Maybe they're maybe they're running. Maybe they're laying in bed. Yeah. When you do podcasts, you're. I mean, at least for me, I'm like. It's deeply personal. It really is deeply personal. Yeah. You whisper yeah. people to sleep. <laughs> well, I listen to podcasts before I go to bed sometimes. So it's like. Yeah. When I listen to podcasts, I actually don't do anything else. I'm not a good listen to podcasts while doing something else. You're just. You're just like. Yeah, I just sit there and I listen. <laughs> That's like that's like I don't know about that. No, I don't know. I do I do the same thing with books or, or you know. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, but the only point that I was going to make here that's actually quite interesting is that when we think about flashbots and, and the ability to you know make this revenue, there's actually two primary components to it. Um, and there's certain others that I'm not going to get into, but a chunk of it is what goes to the searcher, and so the uh, bot operator or individual or whatever it is, a trading firm that found the opportunity. And then a portion of it goes to the validator that proposed the block in which that transaction has occurred. And so what we've seen historically, something, and Stefan, correct me if I'm wrong, something between like 90 and 95% of the revenue from these like searching activities actually end up in the hands of validators. And so on the competitive side, what the competitive side that you're, that you're referring to kind of talks about is a little bit more on the searcher side and less so on the validator side, if that kind of makes sense. And then maybe I'll pass it over to Stefan to give his answer. Yeah, no, I mean, that's exactly right, actually. So, so Frank, the way I understood your question is like, well, if there's more and more people using MevBoost, are the like, returns going to be diluted? Um, it's a much, much more eloquent way of asking my question, yes. And the answer is the, actually the opposite. So here's, here's the reason why. When there isn't an efficient way to do Mev, to outsource Mev, only like, very sophisticated actors can do it. So, you know, these block builders or these searchers that are highly um, specialized could extract the majority of the value. Um, that's what we saw before sort of flashbots came around. Um, and then when we started launching this, this infrastructure that allowed for open, transparent competition between these actors, all of a sudden their margin went down, right? The margin of the traders went down and then the, the returns of the miners and the validators uh, go, went up. So the more validators run this software, the more there is sort of open, transparent competition uh, on the trading side, which means that the more that these traders are paying to, uh, to validators and the more efficient that that market works. It's kind of one of the, the principles through which Flashbots design these markets, right? You want the market to be returning as much of the value as possible to the uh, entities that are doing productive work, right? To the validators who are uh, securing the network because then you have more validators and you have more security. So yeah, the, the yields typically um, uh, don't go down. If the number of validators all of a sudden sort of doubles, right, and you go from having four hundred thirty thousand to having nine thousand, you know, uh, nine hundred thousand, a million validators, then yes, the yields go down. 
because you don't have the opportunity to produce a block as frequently. But given sort of a certain number of, of validators, the more that run these marketplace, the higher the yield is for, for everyone. Yeah, and, and that's actually one of the nice things also about how we expect this like sphere to play out over time, which is that if you look at traditional finance, it's more and more, hey, how can we create our own kind of like segregated, secluded, private dark pools? And one of the things that we often think about as a design philosophy within crypto generally, but also Flashbots specifically, is how do you essentially create the most, you know, kind of like publicly accessible, the most generalizable way. And you want to encourage people like financially, right? So that the best that you can do is to participate as part of this open permissionless system, rather than try to like seclude your portion of it somewhere else that's inaccessible to everyone. And so that's one of the important principles and maybe something I'll give a quick shout out to to Stefan and the entire Flashbots team is that when we think about the Flashbots design today on proof of stake Ethereum, they actually had an important trade-off, which is that do they want to enable anybody any validator to join in a permissionless way? Or do they have do they want to whitelist validators? And you know, one of the things that it kind of impacts is whether or not you show the block contents to the validator before proposing that block. And so if you have like rando validators, like anybody can join, and you also show them the block contents before they get produced, those validators can essentially like copy trade or like, you know, exclude those transactions, include their own transactions, and make all that revenue for themselves. And it's very difficult to punish them because, you know, if you kick out a validator, they can, you know, withdraw their ETH, uh, move their ETH to another address, spin up a new validator, and then get back into the system, into a system and try to steal from it again. And so the way that they designed it is such that any validator can permissionlessly join. In order to do that, they implemented the proposal build separation, which is that the validator doesn't see the contents of the block they produce, so they can't steal from it essentially, or like steal its contents. Mm. And so there's like a whole bunch of these like small changes, you know, that people can kind of think about and, and intentionally choose in order to keep the most permissionless, most open system, the one that is also the most profitable, so that everybody's incentivized to continue participating in this open manner. Understood. So what should we expect next from you guys? Hopefully Coinbase um, supporting Mev, Mev Boost. <laughs> so hopefully Coinbase boosting their rewards. Yeah, yeah. yeah that'd be great. Yeah, well, I have some CBETH, so I'm hopeful for that as well. Um, <laughs> but no, on the, on the Coinbase Cloud side, we are working on adding that support right now. And then all of our, our customers and anybody that uses uh, Coinbase Cloud to run Ethereum validators is going to be able to opt into it. I don't think Coinbase has put out any public statement one way or the other regarding the use of Flashbots or Mev, but and I'll pass it over to Stefan to kind of highlight what's next up for them. Yeah, so the, so the research work continues, you know, building out a system for, uh, for proof-of-stake Ethereum was required because <laughs> proof-of-stake was <laughs> happening, uh, but it by no means is the sort of final solution to, to MEV, so... There's a lot of stuff around transaction flow, around order flow, um, and the value of it that, that is becoming a hotter topic. Questions around how does MEV between different uh, chains mm. um, sort of get extracted? That's another big topic of, of research. Um, and so for us, it's very much so looking at MEV holistically for all of these systems and doing and playing a bit of, of MEV whack-a-mole, right? Centralization whack-a-mole. Every time we see sort of a place where centralization can start to emerge, we put our, our research hats on and our, our development hats on to try to figure out what's a, a solution to that. Now. What is one vector of centralization that's emerging 
right now? Yeah, so I mentioned um, order flow being a big one. And in particular, sort of what's described as exclusive order mm. flow. So I go to a wallet provider, I go to an exchange provider, and I say, hey, I'm going to pay you you know, some amount of ETH if you send your transactions to me exclusively, and I get the chance to look at them first. Right? It's the, the, the typical payment for, for order flow type mm. of system. Um, and so I gave a presentation last week at a conference around you know, this problem and what does the solution space uh, for, it, for it look like. So how does that happen? Uh, I'll give a specific example, Frank. So let's say that you are a wallet and okay. you're, you're, you're MetaMask, let's just say. I'm MetaMask um, here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Big MetaMask guy over here. <laughs> um, but as part of using MetaMask, let's, go, let's say that you go to Uniswap and you execute a trade and you'd like to buy some ETH. Mm-hmm. And because uh, you see the price is down, very, very low, very bad price. Today, right now. <laughs> Today, right now. <laughs> um, so as part of that, uh, MetaMask is sending your transaction to Infura, or if you put in some other custom RPC endpoint, they can send it over there, and that's how it gets mm. broadcasted to the network. But what somebody can do is that once MetaMask can, you know, has your signed transaction, they can give it to a particular, you know, searcher or block builder or some other type of entity that is then able to extract MEV because they see that transaction before anybody else does. And so if your transaction, you know, you're, Frank, you're, you're a whale, let's just say, and you're buying $100 million of ETH in a single, in a single trade on Uniswap, <laughs> and it causes a little bit of slippage, then that searcher will be able to you know, back run your, your transaction, for example, or otherwise you know, perform arbitrage between exchanges like Curve or whatever, um, and earn profit from that. And so it's interesting because it's not unilaterally bad. One thing that can be enabled with it is that you can have it be that um, MetaMask works with, this is just an example, obviously, I don't know that. MetaMask is not doing this, but MetaMask can work with, let's say, five searchers, and it says, hey, you are welcome to perform MEV on my user's transactions as long as the user doesn't get harmed in the process. And so mean, meaning that like you can't like sandwich, you know, sandwich the user, for example, and so you can backrun them. And so if the user's trade caused a, a price imbalance, you can you know, rebalance it directly after them, as an example, which doesn't impact the user. Any money that you make, you keep a portion of it, I, as MetaMask, keep a portion of it, and then my user actually earns money for their trade because they get a portion of the profits as well. And so you can think of like, you know, this order flow problem is something that can be like exclusive and a little bit uh, worrying, but it could also be used as a, as a pretty powerful UX tool. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. And so the solution, how are you figuring out a solution for this? First is like accurately, you know, defining the problem. And from my from my perspective, backrunning is actually just as bad as uh, sandwiching. The way that I think about order flow is really it's users that have some intent. They want to trade on chain at the best price right now. And so what we have to do is design systems that are able to give the best execution of these preferences um, to these users. And these systems have not been designed yet, right? Um, right now, it's just user sends transaction to the chain to get included. It's not user expresses intent and there's competition to who can provide the best settlement on that intent. So these markets need to be developed, right? These markets that are able to help users get the outcome that they want at the best price and like within the shortest amount of time uh, possible. I gave a presentation called Order Flow Has a Solution, 
which is, you know, a lot of the thinking so far has been, well, we want to send these transactions to a single counterparty who is able to return some value to the user, mm. right? Uh, but then you get centralization because now there's a single party who's able to see the transaction and able to censor them and whatnot. So you can think about the properties that a system needs to have to be able to give the best price over time. You want it to be permissionless. You want it to return you know, the most amount of value to, to the user, attribute the most amount of value back to the user, um, and you want it to be reliable in, in execution. I'm pushing right now really hard on the concept of fee escalators as a way to achieve this, um, but it is still sort of a research topic um, that we might see uh, sort of come online a bit later this year or next year. Can you please figure out why price isn't going up? That should be the top priority for you. The devs are asleep at the wheel. I can't take it anymore. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining the show. Yeah, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. I think that um, it'll be an edifying experience for the listeners as they go about their day doing their laundry. Or maybe there's some folks like Victor who just sit and do nothing while they listen to a podcast. Intently. Intently. <laughs> do you take notes? Nope. Sometimes. No, no notes. No notes. No, not a note take or. Uh, gentlemen, thanks again so much for joining us. Um, where, where can people learn more if they want to about Flashbots and what you guys are working on there? So we actually launched a website after two years in existence uh, a few weeks ago, <laughs> flashbots.net. Um, and it has everything to learn about our, our research collective and the products that we build. Yeah, and I and I recommend also visiting writings.flashbots.net. They are some of the some of the clearest thinking, uh, most impactful blogs, essays, research studies in the industry, I think. But to learn a little bit more about Coinbase and Coinbase Cloud, just visit coinbase.com forward slash cloud. We're also on Twitter at Coinbase Cloud. And then I'm Victor Bunyan on Twitter. Are you going to be at that thing on Thursday with Surgit? Uh, I'm going to be at a bunch of things, there's a, but there's a breakfast or something. Yeah, 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 I'm I'm not sure. I'm actually we're having a baby this week, I think. So Oh, well, yeah, so I'm not committing. <laughs> that's a that's a thing to do. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. That's a calendar entry, I guess. <laughs> They're on the list of priorities, but maybe not number I guess, one. Yes, is it? Is it? Is it? Yeah, maybe <laughs> baby is top, top yeah. of mind. Baby is top of mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys so much. Appreciate it. Of course, thank you. Awesome, thanks. The scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.